0: first step of solving this problem of building better businesses is confidence in decisions. The confidence is accounting because that's kind of the measure of financial health and it needs to be in real time. Well, the only way to do accounting in real time today is to hire a lot of people. (laughs) And most small businesses, medium businesses can't afford a CFO, can't afford to hire an army of people and don't want to use bundled, mediocre software. So what do you do? You have to build generative accounting.
1: Hello and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance pros leverage technology to level up their lives. I'm your host, Adam Shulton, and in this episode, we're speaking with Sasha Orloff, co-founder and CEO of Puzzle, a new AI-enabled core accounting platform focused on autonomous finance. He has extensive experience founding and advising startups, with the companies he's founded having raised over a billion in financing, and he also serves as a contributor to foreveryfounder.com. Saffer has also spoken at venues including TEDx and the World Economic Forum, giving guest lectures at universities like Stanford, and his writing has been featured in outlets such as the Wall Street Journal and Fast Company. But when he's not building, Sasha likes to ski, play soccer, and play with his two kids, but mostly he just works, right? <laughs> but before we dive in, if you like what you hear today, make sure to subscribe to Tech for Finance on your favorite podcast platform and on YouTube and sign up to the tech for finance newsletter at techforfinance.com. But great to have you with us today Sasha. Um, hopefully we'll we'll get rocking and rolling this time after the technical difficulties we had last time.
0: Eh? <laughs> Second time's a charm. Yeah. yeah,
1: there we go. So but no it's it's really good to to, to have you on as I was I was really excited because obviously I love AI um obviously audiences forever trying to get up to speed with AI. So we'll talk about puzzle, which obviously is totally AI enabled. So we can talk about how all that works in a bit, um, recent funding from born capital, which is ace. I think that's how we first got connected through yeah. while uh, to born at born capital Another previous podcast guest. So check that out. It's a really good conversation as well. But before we kick, kick things off, Sasha, I mean, you've advised a load of businesses and you've co-founded a, a lot of businesses. So, tech is kind of central to to everything that you've done throughout your career. So, can you tell us a little bit more about how that's evolved and why you decided to, I guess, f- found Puzzle? Yeah. Hi, Adam.
0: Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think one of the things there are a bunch of things in life you can control, and there's a bunch of things in life you can't control. And I can't control the latitude and longitude where I was born, but it happened to be in the Silicon Valley sort of area. And so it's hard not to grow up and have seen so much tech around you. Um, and so when we think back to the early days of software and the internet and mobile and now AI, that's just all around. It's the meetups, it's the billboards, it's the advertising, it's the it, it's the network, it's the community all around you. Um, and so that uh, I think was a benefit of of how I became exposed to software at an early age.
1: Okay. Fabulous. And, and, and again, feel free to give a longer or brief answer to this question, but you've kind of come from advisor and non-exec type roles. And now you've moved into more of a hands-on role as a CEO of puzzle. Normally it's the other way around, right? So you found a couple of companies you get stuck in and then decide, right, well, let's, let's take a hands-off approach and I'll become an advisor instead. But it seems to be the reverse for you.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that, um, sort of appreciate, having been a venture capitalist for a while, is that um, entrepreneurship and founders are just like normal people, maybe with a little bit of, you know, psychotic masochism in there uh, along the (laughs) way. Um, The first step is quite the hardest, but what you see, and I think one of the things that's really different about Silicon Valley and um, in, in other places is um, failure is, is almost a badge of honor. Like having started something um, is is hard um, and scary. And not everybody's in the financial position to be able to do so um, or wants the job. But what you see is that in many other places, if you start something that doesn't work, you're kind of branded as a failure. And in Silicon Valley, if you start something that doesn't work, you've just learned a really important lesson and you can take that to the next thing that you start and the next thing you start. And so I built my career um, from uh, the start of uh, graduating from university in mathematics to having my first job be at a startup um, in Silicon Valley during the first wave of the internet. It was a benchmark portfolio company and uh, we the company was started out of their offices and sort of I joined as the first kind of junior hire, the first analyst. And, and the company grew and ended up having an exit um, to at and um and was with uh, a huge telephone company in the United States for any listeners, not in the United States. Um, and uh, and and that was sort of my first exposure to equity and the value of what equity could build and the the difference it could change in somebody's life. I paid off my student loans, I bought a car, and I was like, this is incredible. Um, from there, I, I took a wide variety of jobs and operating roles and roundabout through living in Europe and and uh, Central America and the East Coast, New York, D.C., and coming back to San Francisco as a venture capitalist, um, you saw that just sort of people, anybody was entrepreneurs, like they were young people and old people. Um, while I was on the sort of older side on my first venture, I got to take the learnings of working in nonprofit and government and multinationals and private companies and startups to an idea I became obsessed about and I couldn't find somebody to invest in that sort of was pursuing the idea. And I became so obsessed that I decided I was going to do it. Um, and, uh, that was, that was the starting point of the first, the first startup founding role, you know, 10 or 15 years into my career.
1: Yeah. Okay. And now puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it's rare that I get kind of properly excited. Um, and and the the reason that I'm cited is because, as as you know, Sasha, I I come from a background in in ERP and finance software, yeah. Whether it's Sage, SAP, Oracle, what what have you, and this this isn't a disservice to any of those platforms, right? But um, they've been around for a while um, and disrupting and innovating aren't necessarily always words that you attribute with some of these you know real really large companies that got the lion's share of the market i'm not saying that they're lazy but they can afford to be a bit more lazy than you know a founder with a bit between their teeth trying to change things right so what we haven't seen really is any platform that's done a good job of building that ai piece foundationally into the the core of the platform so some systems they might have more of a traditional approach to ai whereby you know built on AWS or something like that, you know, and and it can have a, say, like a machine learning algorithm built into it that can look at historic data and it might be able to do some predictions for you. It. it might be able to detect those outliers and say, look, oh, something doesn't look right. You, you need to have a look at this, right? But I think I won't say that's old hat now, but it kind of feels old hat compared to some of the stuff that companies like you were doing, right? So, when I looked at the demo that you did, because I think you did a loom or something like that, just just showing the key off <laughs> and, yeah. and I loved it. It was great, you know, with all of the sort of um, conditional formatting and those AI generated insights from, from GL structure and, you know, all of that sort of stuff that I'm sure people can check out to go see puzzle, but a term that you focus on quite heavily is the concept of generative accounting. Yes, I think is a term that not a lot of people have probably heard today, right? They've heard of generative AI, right? You know, oh, yeah, I can ask ChatGPT prompts and it's going to help me generate, you know, an onboarding document, you know, and I can upload Excel now. That's great. I can merge documents and do all of those sorts of things. But that's quite sort of a a limited use case. What we're not talking about is a solution that's got AI, uh, AI built into the core. So are you able to talk a little bit more about what you mean by generative accounting? and how in developing Puzzle, you're making sure that AI is central to that and ensuring that that produces insights that maybe a more traditional system wouldn't.
0: Yeah, happy to. I'm gonna start a little bit answering this question with the theme of what gets me excited about why I'm building Puzzle. And as we back into the logic, hopefully it comes out with an intuitive story of how we arrived at generative accounting as the first step of that solution. But um, having scaled to companies before, having been on board members of uh, a company called like Revolut, for example, mm-hmm. a large global uh, banking system, building my own companies, being on some other friends' boards, advising founders, advising um, other uh, uh, founders and Y networks like in Y Combinator Alumni Advisor, being a board member, one of the things that has evolved over the past fifteen or twenty years um, is, I-, I think, that. Um, the way businesses are built are built differently than, than they were before. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, we have more of a global connected economy. Um, there's um, sort of really great tools in the market. Um, you can scale much faster than ever before. Understanding your business is slightly different. But all of these themes come to one common theme that every business owner and every executive and really every employee and shareholder have in common is they want to build a better business. They want to build a healthier business. So one theme, we, we get if we get shares, we want the shareholder value to increase. We want to become more profitable so we can have more profit sharing or bonuses and career trajectory. We want to work with partners. Everybody wants a business to be better. And there's no real way to understand financial health in real time. And how this would manifest as the CEO is I would sit around the table and everybody on my team, from HR to product to engineering to finance to you name it, sales, everybody could open up their computer and answer questions about the state of their business. And as I would look to my finance lead, they would write down questions and then say, I'll come back to you in three days. And when you look at this at a macro level, we've just become accustomed that finance leaders cannot answer questions in real time. They can answer questions about the past. They can answer questions they pre-prepared, but they can't answer questions. We've just accepted that that's just the way things are done. And when you start to dig into it more, it's obviously not the fault of accounting and finance teams. It's the fault of their software. And so that became the impetus to why I became aware of this problem. And then as I sounded a board member, I would have a responsibility as a board member, the fiduciary responsibility to the company to ask questions about the finances of a company. And unless that finance person, the CFO, the VP of finance, the accountant, the controller had pre-planned that answers, you know they're not going to answer the questions. And I have to answer it. Mm -hmm. They get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable. Everybody in the room feels bad. And again, we've just accepted that this is the way it is. Um, And so one, I also felt bad um, and felt embarrassed and felt guilty for asking the important questions. And then again, if we take the theme again to an analogy of making decisions about the business require confidence in the data that you're looking at. And then if we draw that analogy, if we think accounting as the data and finance as the insights and the decisions that you make out of that data, well, then garbage in means garbage out. So the first thing we had to solve was the garbage in problem. And so that was the impetus. I want to help businesses become better versions of themselves. I think making data-driven decisions are better. And if you can have confidence in your most important financial decisions, then you should be able to build a better business. So that was the theme. That was the impetus. That was what got me excited. And it's a bit like puzzle. If you think about accounting as a puzzle too, well, if you're doing a thousand piece puzzle with grandma and you do 995 pieces and then you realize, oh man, I'm missing those five pieces. Well, like you can't complete your full picture. And just like a puzzle, if you don't see all the pieces, you can't see the complete picture of your company. And so puzzle became the natural name for... I want to be able to make sure I have all the pieces in accounting. We call that reconciliation. And I want to make sure all the pieces are in the right order. Uh, and that's the sort of accuracy piece. Uh, and I want to be able to see it in multiple different ways as well. So that's accounting. So that's the baseline long answer to why I'm excited about accounting. All right. So then why do we start with generative accounting? Well, as a, I think training at VC, there's three major trends that are happening in the market right now. One, these legacy players in the market... Um, bundle more and more software together and it's not the best in class software on the market it's not the software that we choose natively as founders or we want to build with and so we are constantly making a choice do we want to have bundle mediocre software because it's easy or do we want to use the best software in the market and most people want to use the best software in the market not what's bundled but you choose bundle a lot of times because it's just easy and hard and finance people and kind of people don't have engineering degrees or might not have engineering resources. One, so it was making the skill set of the accountant and finance team need to be able to learn how to code. Well, that's just another indication of a failure in software. The second piece is more and more data is becoming available and open. Uh, and AI, uh, ChatGPT-4, just passed the CPA exam. Mm-hmm. And more data means you can do more insights and you can have better automation. And so we thought: all right, well, the first step of solving this problem of building better businesses is confidence in decisions. The confidence is. Accounting, because that's kind of the measure of financial health and it needs to be in real time. Well, the only way to do accounting in real time today is to hire a lot of people. (laughs) And most small businesses, medium businesses can't afford a CFO, can't afford to hire an army of people, and don't want to use bundled, mediocre software. So what do you do? You have to build generative accounting. You have to have software generate your accounting. Because you need to be able to spend less time. And so this required three things. It required a new data model that lets you see both cash and accrual financials at the same time. It needs to have a data platform underneath it. So you could do insights, trends, variance analysis, all sorts of like understanding of why things were changing. Like understanding, oh, my marketing budget, my marketing changed. Like that's not helpful. Who is the person on the team that increased marketing? And was that in line with budget? Was that in line with expectations? Is that hitting the ROI that I expected? The sales team is promising this certain level of sales and billings and bookings. Is that actually translating down to core cash? You need to be able to see the business drivers together in a single place. And we don't need to do all of this rote, repetitive work. Like preparing a bank reconciliation, that's crazy. Like. Take the opening balance, closing balance, add up all the transactions, put them together. We should be able to automate that and match it to the general ledger and match to the bank statement and make sure all these things are done. That's where AI and software can come into play. You shouldn't need to categorize your same transactions again and again or have to create a manual rule. You should just do it. If you're depreciating tens or hundreds or thousands of computers, you should be able to do this on a line level item. So what we needed was an event driven system that has a learning system on top of it. That generates financials and shows you what's accurate and what's not accurate. So you're spending less time focusing on helping drive the business. That's the long answer.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's great, and and I think it's something that people need to hear. And it's great that there's companies like yours pushing boundaries because it's the only way that we are going to move to to a better place, as you so eloquently described there. You know. In order to get better as a business, we need to be able to make better decisions quicker, fundamentally, right? So I think if we look at, again, focusing on that concept of generative accounting, you've got your various puzzle pieces there. So you mentioned example of, you know, reconciliations that are put on autopilot so that we don't have to set rules and and manually match and all that sort of stuff. But. Also there, you've got the concept of support with financial reporting, support mm-hmm. with insights. So, uh, and again, this might be related to puzzle. It could just be from from your knowledge, but what I've been talking about more and more recently, and we had uh, Nicolas Boucher, who um, who's quite predominant in sort of the FP&A, and now he's moved into AI and finance, and, and we're having a really good conversation about AI challenging you to think differently. Yeah, because we only know what's in our brain. And if I try and create a financial report, it's based on what's in my head, right? Mm-hmm. Unless I go to somebody that's got more expertise than me and I exactly. ask, what, how would you generate this model or how would you generate this report? And then I'm bugging somebody else and, you know, they might not have time because they're more senior in the business and, and so on and so forth. So one of the use cases that I see for AI is to have almost like that sounding board that says, you know, have you thought about things this way? You know, or what would it look like if you visualized in this way versus that way? Is that the territory that we're moving into? Because, of course, a a lot of finance pros now are are fearing that, you know, with more automation, they're going to have less of a job to to do. And we always say that, no, you're just moving yourself further towards that value-add curve, right? So are you seeing more of that? You know, are these systems geared to provide insight that you wouldn't otherwise know about, I guess? I suppose that's, that's the question. Quick one guys, I'd like to take a moment to invite you to the AI Finance Club. The AI Finance Club isn't just another professional group. It's a dedicated platform to help finance pros integrate AI into their work. Now, with AI revolutionising every aspect of business, staying up to date and building AI skills is no longer an option if you don't want to get left behind. So with a membership, every month you'll receive a live workshop with industry experts, including me, to help you apply AI in practical finance scenarios. You'll get an in-depth review of the latest AI tools tailored for finance, so you know what works best. You'll get customized AI prompts to help transform the way that you work, curated news and updates on AI advancements in the finance sector, and deep dives into AI in finance processes to help optimize your finance operations. Now, personally, I do believe that a hive mind approach to learning works wonders. So on top of what I've already mentioned, you will have access to a community chat where you can connect, share and learn from a network of finance professionals who are all embracing AI together. Now, as a Tech for Finance listener, you'll receive 10% off your first annual subscription, plus you'll receive free access to the entire ChatGPT for Finance course, both the videos and written guides. Now, to take advantage of this offer, go to techforfinance.com forward slash AI and enter the code ADAM100 at checkout. Once again, that's techforfinance.com forward slash AI, with the code Adam 100 at checkout. See you there.
0: I think um, there's so many benefits we could have, I mean, hours of conversation. But if, if we oh, whittle yeah. it down to a couple things that are going to impact people's lives today and people's jobs today, I think one key benefit is one of the growing skill set that is needed in accounting and finance is code like if you are an engineer, if you're a, an accountant or a finance person, and you know Python, you have superpowers beyond everybody else, um, and that's crazy bonkers. Like you should not need to know how to code Python in order to do your job and to be great at your job. That is not. That's just a clear indication that um, the software is wrong. We should be able to enable you to answer the questions that you want to answer in the way that you want to answer them without needing to learn how to code. So the first part is connecting people to the data of the company and keeping the data structured in a single system. So if somebody on sales is making decisions just in their sales platform, or in revenue just in one of their payments platforms, or in payroll in isolation without understanding the drivers of how these different data sources are connected together, sell, like your, your invoices have to drive to sales, have to drive, like they have to drive all the way through to cash at some point, or another, um, and your people are on teams that are driving different aspects of your business. So the interconnectedness of the data is the hard part. Mm -hmm. And that's a place where software does really well. So that was the first part I talked about is accounting needed a new data model Mm -hmm. so that everybody in the organization was looking at the same data and it meant the same thing. The second piece I think is the retrieval, back to what you you mentioned. Um, You need to be able to understand and ask questions. And so this is where generative AI or large language models are really good, assuming the underlying data is structured in a way that LLMs can understand. So it would be like, you know, asking my um, son what the EBITDA was of the company. Like, he's just not going to know because it's not structured. But if I gave him a book and I gave him our financials and there was the word EBITDA right there, he could like look down the list and then find the number according to the month in like the spreadsheet because yeah. it's structured in a way that is great. I could say, listen, I know you're only eight, go down the left side till you see the EBI D T A, and then scroll over to the month of like November, and he can find that. So the whole underlying data structure needs to be organized in a way that LLMs can read it so that anybody in the organization with permissions of course can just ask a question in their natural language. And one way in which we do this, for example, is one of the most time-consuming parts of accounting is that last mile, right? That last little percent of like, what is this random transaction that Adam bought and didn't put a receipt on and didn't document and there's no metadata? But if we could just identify that and trigger an email or Slack or a text and say, hey, Adam, yesterday you bought this thing and I don't know what it is. Like, what is it? And you could just write back in human language. Oh yeah, sorry, that was an obscure piece of furniture I bought for the office uh, around. Like, great, we can categorize that really easily uh, this happened actually just this morning somebody one of our new hires just bought a, a standing desk and it was some random word i'd never heard of before um and they wrote back and then they went, oh this was my my new uh, adjustable height desk great well that just categorizes furniture you don't need to know anything about accounting it just works so i think it connects people through natural language to an obscure set of rules that's accounting and i think the last piece is like you said there's somewhat different views In your finances and you need to understand the drivers and how these things come together and so for example like the typical stereotypical one is like my accrual revenue if i'm a software company and somebody prepays me an annual amount like my financials my accrual financials are just going to show my revenue as like some amount of money and my cash financials are going to show like a big huge upfront payment and it's going to be really lumpy well like both are correct technically uh, but i need to have trust because as soon as you start obscuring away cash and time Uh, in your accrual financials or your gap financials, like you, you no longer, there's always that air of like, do I trust this? And so you have to be able to trace everything down to the raw. Like everybody knows like customer X bought product Y on this date, right? That makes intuitive sense to everybody how something comes through an amortization schedule and then reconciles back to cash and then halfway through they upgraded or downgraded or they charged back and they changed payment terms. Like if you can't trace and understand all of this, you're not going to be able to comfort. And when you're doing this from, at least in our research, a lot of people are still doing this in Excel. They're doing their depreciation, amortization schedules, adjustments in Excel, which requires incredible discipline to document policy, what's out of policy. And that's why we have like the concept of like, a bookkeeper or an accountant prepares it and a controller oversees it. And then we have a third party auditor that that oversees the overseeing of the overseeing. And then we have the AICPA overseeing the overseers of the reviewers of the person doing the work. Like software can actually do this and build confidence. And so we don't need four people to review the same one transaction all the time. Like software can solve this. And so that's a bit about how um, I think AI can both see and review and validate in a way that um, if you did it with software would require years and years and years of coding every single possible edge case and nuance where I can interpret this and say, Hey, I think you should look into this. It doesn't say declaratively, here's a problem and I fixed this and I didn't tell you about it. But at this point right now, AI is really good at saying, Hey, this looks, this looks off in a way you can do it in a single bar or chat GPT call. In a way that would previously take maybe a decade um, to write all of the different edge cases um, of software,
1: and and it's it's so interesting. And I just want to on a focus on a couple of things that you've you've said there because it's got it's got the cogs wearing and sorry we're we're drifting off some of the topics that I sent to you, but hopefully you're <laughs> okay, drifting a little bit. So one of the things you said is, firemen shouldn't need to know how to code Python. Yeah, which, which I, I agree with, right? Because, you know, the more time you're spending on learning something new and then spending the time, you know, generating the code and then running it in an environment that you might not, might not be familiar with, this time that's spent away from, you know, making decisions or doing the business partnering thing, you know, speaking to, to the CEO, people like yourself say, you know, what insight do you need from me? What, what data do you want? So I'll, I'll echo that by saying that, you know, if there are tools that can save that time, then that's that's all for the better, right? Um recently Microsoft announced that you can now build Python into Excel, which I thought, oh, you know, th- this is amazing because you know you can then take your Excel to the next level, but you're still working in Excel, right? You know, so maybe the question is, if you're having to use Python in Excel, is your data and is your structure set up in, in the right way? So so that's when we've got to go back to what are we solving for? Are we solving for the wrong problem, or do we need to go back to the origination of that, and maybe we adapt our process, or think about who's doing what, you know, and and maybe automate at a base level before we think about reengineering through Python in an Excel spreadsheet, or, or... so anyway, that that's something that that, that came to, to my mind. You can't hear uh, me nodding vigorously uh, <laughs> of, uh, yep. Yep. Uh, on the podcast, but yes, I, so, I agree. So I echo that. um, but the, the second piece that you mentioned there um, came to AI being able to categorize. And you mentioned the concept there of metadata, which is probably not a term that is familiar to a, a lot of finance pros, you know, and and for me, having spent a bit of time in sales and marketing, I understand metadata in terms of SEO and, you know, keyword optimization and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But I suppose metadata... Could be summed up as like associated information. Is that a fair? Is that a fair? So I
0: think there's, there's, um, um, it first of all, I encourage everybody to learn how to code just because I think it's a good skill set as you're dealing with software all the time. So I'm not saying that, um, coding and Python and Excel and whatever are bad things. These are, these are there. We, we believe that people should be able to do the analysis and the different views because every business is different. We mm-hmm. really focus right now on the underlying data structures back to it. Mm-hmm. And so what does metadata mean? Well, if you think about the kind of origination uh, of accounting or the history, the evolution of accounting, um, it's a sort of a series of debits and credits and a bunch of <laughs> checks and balances on the debits and credits. Um, if you were to build a repository of debits and credits today... Um, that uh, would, I think, be limiting in the ability to um, answer questions and be a good business partner. And so what I mean by metadata is sort of let's take um, an example of uh, sort of the facts and then the metadata. So um, you uh, bought a computer today. There is a uh, fact which is like at Apple or your favorite retailer and computer. <laughs> um, you bought a overpriced computer on today's date. Uh, so those are three pieces of information that are kind of f- fact and that are, are are the only thing that's really kind of core needed in a transaction system. But if we appended a bunch of metadata to that, you could say, uh, well, was this... Um, a a GNA, a a general administrative, a research development, a sales and marketing cost. Um, Who purchased this computer? Was it a primary computer? Was it a replacement computer? Um, Was it uh, for this region, for this entity um, on a credit card, which should go to the balance sheet until you pay it off? Was it purchased on financing? All of the rest of that information, that additional information is the metadata and how that helps translate into automation or even just the receipt? Um, let's just say you actually just had it. Just says maybe it just says Apple Store, uh, two thousand uh, dollars, December nineteenth, uh, twenty twenty-three. Um, well, like we, you can't really. You can guess, but I can know with certainty if I know Adam bought it and Adam added the receipt. And on the receipt, I can parse with AI and say, oh, this is a MacBook Pro. Um, and maybe this fits our depreciation policy. And maybe I just auto depreciate it on the balance sheet by a two and a half year fixed fee, no salvage value, or straight line, no salvage value. Um, and uh, and then the system can do that. And then you can just say, yes, that's, that's true. Um, and so the more metadata we have, the more confidence we can independently make a decision where if I just saw QuickBooks, I mean, QuickBooks, sorry. If I just saw, edit that out. If I just saw (laughs) Apple on uh, the (laughs) transaction, I might not know what it is. Um, So if I know who bought it on what credit card, well, then I can follow up with Adam. If I see a receipt there, I can look at the receipt. If AI parses a receipt and says MacBook Pro, here's the VIN number. Well, now I can actually just auto depreciate it on the fixed asset register with a VIN number associated with Adam and set up all the auto depreciation because I know the policy and know the rules. So all of this is, I guess, a quote, additional information or metadata uh, that I can use to make a more confident categorization decision in the world of
1: um, categorization. And where the AI then steps in, is, as you've said, is that if the metadata exists, it can latch onto that and auto-categorize to say, you know, this is that spend category or this is this revenue category, right? And the example that you gave earlier of the Slack message is for if that data doesn't exist, and you do actually need a prompt to say there's there's a gap in the data. We can't categorize this yet.
0: Yeah. So there's like there's potentially three obvious places. There's a couple back end um, sort of data integrity things that it can do. But to, as a user, um, again, let's just take the transaction of uh, three thousand dollars at Apple on December nineteenth. Um, mm-hmm. If that is it, then. Um, Nobody knows. Like AI doesn't know. Your bookkeeper doesn't know. The only person that knows is you, because you purchased it. So first, I have to figure out who did it. That's a piece of metadata. Um, so let's say there's no, uh, let's say there's no receipt and no other information. Well, what I can do is I can auto assign it to you, and then you can respond back and say, oh, that's a computer. And LLMs AI can translate that against my chart of accounts, against what you wrote, and say, okay, let's match the word "this is a computer" to "computers and hardware." Um, And then what else it can do is it can look for a policy and say, is there a policy? What's depreciation? And then depreciate it along the way. The other thing AI can do is if you did add your receipt and the receipt was able to suck in through the system or you upload it and you parse it, then AI can also do a better job of uh, parsing or um, pulling out the correct information out of that receipt to say, this is a MacBook, here's the VIN number, and then auto-populate it into the system. So it's like a more modern, faster version of... Uh, OCR, which is sort of like uh, took a lot of software and scanning. So those are three ways in which just the process of categorizing this one Apple transaction AI can come in to make things easier, depending upon if I know who did it, I know what it was, or I don't know what it was and I have the receipt. And... And nobody wins. Nobody wins by having a bookkeeper email you and half you have to respond and then them having to like keep track of the 100 things at the end of the month and then go in and search one at a time through all the transactions in the system. Like that's not a win for anybody. That's not a win for my time, it's not a win for the bookkeeper's time. That's like a a 15 to 20 minute process for one transaction that can be solved with AI in seconds. Um mm. It's just a better use of time knowing that that's a computer. And then I do have to write a depreciation expense like every month for two and a half, three years. That's not Mm. a great use of anybody's time. Mm. What's a great use of time is making sure that policy is set up the right way, making sure that policy is being enforced, make sure that it is within the right budget. And if that is your CTO who is buying wildly expensive, like over-the-top computers uh, for their team, uh, then maybe it's like coming at the expense of another headcount in their budget. They should also be able to access their budget and track their budget. We don't need, that's like not a good use of time. The, the good use of time is what do I do about this? Not am I categorizing this the right way? And am I adding everything up into the right budget? Am I classifying this in the right region and the right department? Like software does a really good job there. AI just does it even better. That's not a good use of human time.
1: Hmm. Fine.